We are in a series that is dealing with Truths for the day, the Bible, and the 2016 elections. I don't know about you, I am so glad Tuesday is here to be done with it, to be done with it, and I'm going to move out of this series. But I wanted to deal with something that's really important this morning. Before I do that, I want to give you a quiz. We did last week, you know, what were the colors of the flags, how many senators, who they are, different things like that. This one's even a little bit more simpler. What political document contains the following as part of its 10 major points? Here's one of them. Number two is heavy progressive income taxes. Number three, a strong central bank. The, number eight, provide for everyone equally. Number 10, free public education. Yeah, you're right. This is, this is from the Communist Manifesto. Okay. Some of those things are happening in America. Okay. And for some folk who would have, some of you may have thought, oh, that's not such bad stuff. Maybe it's one of the platforms from one of the parties. Okay. But when you get down a little bit deeper, some things aren't all is the, what they appear on the surface. Some things, when you get down deeper, ooh. And so it requires us to dig deep at times. Because sometimes things aren't quite right, and it takes us to search out a little bit. I remember, I think I've told you this years ago, my brother and I, when we were both out of the house, we decided when we were home at my parents' place one day to set up a boxing ring in the backyard. All it was was on the grass. With, we took my mom's wash line, brought it way down so it's a boxing ring, and then we got the boxing gloves and we beat on each other for a couple hours. When we were all done, we didn't put the wash line back up, which my mom boxed us, but um, then we put the boxing gloves down in the basement with all the other sports equipment, and just left it on the shelf. We both went to our own homes, and a few weeks later, our parents called. My dad was upset. He was like, yo, oh, he says, you boys. He was like, yo, we're men, but you boys, you always make me do extra work. And it's like, what did we do now? And, uh, you know, my dad's one of those guys that even now when we pull up to a store and us boys are in the car, he'll just automatically say, you better behave when we get inside. It's like, oh, yo. <laughs> So we, he's calling and he's chewing us out on the phone, chewing me out on the phone. He had already chewed out Terry. And it was like, you know, what did we do? He says, ah, you and your silliness with the boxing. And I said, oh, how, did, how did that make you extra works? We got the bruises, not you. And he said, what happened is they lived in the woods at the time. And every so often they'd get animals in the house, mice, you know, different critters. And they would die. And when they die, they stink. Okay. So they were down in the basement. They could smell something died. Something was dead in the basement. He hunted, he hunted. He couldn't find it out. It was close to the sports rack where all the sports equipment was. But he couldn't find out what it was. And he looked, pulled the shelf all apart, looked behind it, no dead mouse. Finally, my mom figured out what it was. We put the boxing gloves down there and never washed them out or anything. It was just the sweat inside had just kind of, yeah, I know it's gross, isn't it? Especially, especially now that it's going on 12 o'clock and you're hungry. So we're talking about something gross like this. But it stank. And it took a little while to figure out where that stank come from. Now, thinking of that stank, um, <laughs> I have no good segue. I honestly don't. <laughs> I don't mean it the way it came across. It's just, okay. but, but sometimes when we get to think, we have to do a little bit more searching than just look at the pictures and say, ah, oh, I'm going to look in who has the best hairdo, you know, who is, you know, what gender they are, what color they are. We got to do a little bit more research. We got to find out because there are some things hidden at times. There are hidden agendas that like the Communist Manifesto, some of it sounds good, but when you get a little bit deeper, you find out that there's something here that's awry. Well, when we come to the political aspirations of different people and we look and evaluate, what you and I need to use as far as sensing and figuring out what's going on here is we need to use our Bible. 
as our guide, as our Geiger counter, as our, you know, our beeper, as looking for the, the, the jewels in the ground. You know, we need to have something that says, okay, what exactly are we looking for? We should be looking at Bible principles, taking the major candidates for president or the parties or the Senate or the local elections, and we should say, how do they line up to the Bible? Not who's promising to fill my pocketbook. That is such a, such a greedy approach you know, who's going, to get, who's going to benefit me and me alone? We've got to take a long look and go by principle. Principle that says, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And then what do they say about that? We, we've looked at some of the issues. And we've tried to give you principles from the Word of God by which you evaluate. The glasses through you which you look through to say, okay, where are they? What, what is going on here? So that we as Christians try to make the impact that we should. Because we understand righteousness exalts a, a, a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We want righteousness to be precedent here when we choose our leadership. But there's one area that I think it's one of those that really comes across clever and it looks good and the way it's packaged most of us would say it's not a bad thing but there's something behind it that is heinous. And it is a popular discussion in this election and it's the word globalism. It's this whole mentality of bringing planet Earth all together. You say, does the Bible talk about it? It really does. The Bible talks a lot about this issue and gives us a lot of warnings. And it should cause us some concerns. And so this morning I want to do a Bible study that is not for the weak and the faint of heart. This isn't a Bible study that is just, okay, let's get some froth and it'll fill my spirit to just get me through and pump me up for the week. If that's what you're looking for, this isn't it this morning. This is for those who can chew the, chew the meat. This is for those who are beyond, beyond just the bottle. This is for meat studying Christians. So join with me in Mark chapter 4 as we go in depth and talk about a principle and the passage that we're looking at to give us some principles by which it's going to give us a springboard of understanding is Mark chapter 4, Matthew, Matthew. I don't know if I said Mark. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Let me read the text for you and then we'll explain what the principles that we see from here. It is a passage that you're very familiar with. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him in the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall, dash, uh, shall bury thee, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus' response, verse 7, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said to him, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil leaves him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. You, know, you understand the story. 
Jesus has just been baptized. He is at the beginning of his three and a half year ministry. He is going out and going to introduce himself to the Israelites. After his baptism, he is led of the Lord into the wilderness where he spends those 40 days fasting, praying, not eating. The devil then comes to him and tempts him in multiple different ways. Three that we know of that are clearly stated here. Jesus' response is the same all three times. No, and he quotes the scriptures. There is a lot here that we could study and a lot that we have in the past that talks about temptations and how they work. That is the main message of this text. It's teaching us that even godly people can be tempted. We look at the main focus of the text and we realize temptations seek us out. We don't have to go after them. They come after us. We know that they are often repeated and they're very persistent in nature. You've experienced that. You know how that works. We know that they often come in our most vulnerable moments where it hasn't eaten. Hasn't, hasn't had that sustenance. And then the temptation is change into food. Something you're craving right about now. So he hits at a vulnerable time. We know that they often include good things. That we aren't tempted with, with things that are usually bad. We're tempted with good stuff. Things that would look good. Feel good. That would make us popular. Make us successful in the eyes of others. And sometimes even necessary things like food. Okay, the, uh, It happens that it, in your and my life that it works this way. We know that the tempter can use scripture. Satan is really wise in the Bible and he twists the Bible. He did that all the way back in Genesis. He did that with Jesus Christ. He's going to do that with us. He's going to easily have us be presented with some type of biblical passage or, or thought that is twisted into an untruth. We've got to be careful. Got to be ever so careful. We know that what is at the heart of this is that the tempter is impugning the care and the goodness of God. God certainly wouldn't let you fall to the earth. If he did, oh, that would be terrible. God certainly doesn't want you out here in the wilderness suffering the way you are. And he impugns, just like he did with Adam and Eve. If God really cared for you, he wouldn't hold anything back from you. And Satan does that a lot with us. He impugns the care, the goodness of God, makes us question him. We also know that the tempter and his hordes can be resisted. They can be rejected. We can be on the winning side. We don't have to give in to the temptations. We are not against an invincible foe. He can be beaten down. Resist the devil and he will Flee from you, James says. We know that victory can be achieved through the Word of God. Using the Word of God as we focus on it, as we even quote it, as we use it as the sword to just fend off Satan's attacks. We know that it is really, really powerful. A powerful tool. We know that it is so important for you and I to say, No, I'm not going to gossip. No, I'm not going to lose my temper. No, I'm not going to take that item. No, I'm not going to cheat. No, I'm not going to view that video or I'm not going to go on that website. No, no. And you need to say it over and over and over again because temptation comes over and over and over again and usually gets stronger as it comes back. We know as well that Jesus understands your battles. That he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. But he understands. So when you go to him and say, Lord, I, I'm just, I'm fretting. This, this discouragement is so overwhelming. He understands. He was there. He experienced all those things. We know that God honors those who resist. Even like when Christ resisted, God provided the help. The angels came, met needs. We know God will do that to us. There's all these. And those are the major lessons of this text. That if we were preaching it with just saying, okay, let's look at the text. But I want to dig and not look at that aspect. I want to look at, does this passage reveal anything about how the world works? 
beyond temptations. And it does. With giving us the third temptation, he is also giving us an insight into how the world works on a political realm. And how it, how it happens to be. You see, the, the temptation, when Satan comes and offers Jesus the world, raises a lot of questions. But what it does teach us is this. That God's plan for the world at this time, in this age, is for many different nations. He offers many different nations and the glories of them. He gives us insight into how the world is working. And Jesus, Jesus by, by, by his consent to what is going on, is saying this is the way it's supposed to be working. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Take it from a different angle. From the beginning of time, it was God's intent. It was God's plan. Now, he, knew it, he knows all the future. But his intent was for a one-world government, a one-world system, a one-world unity. He had that all planned. He had that all prepared, where God and men could live together, where they could enjoy each other. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply. And your children, as long as you do what's right and you follow me, you can stay here. I will take care of you. I will drool directly over you. And it will be a time where we are going to have perfect harmony, perfect peace, and we will all be there and there will be prosperity. We call that place where it was designed the what? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was not a short-term plan. It was God's intent Okay, though he knew what would happen, it was not God's plan for and purpose. He knew it would happen, but he didn't make it happen. He planned a garden of Eden where there'd be harmony. However, men, Adam and Eve, our great, 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 great ancestors, they decided that this wasn't good enough. What God had provided wasn't sufficient. God gave them all the trees but the two. And they weren't satisfied with all the trees but the two they had to have those others as well so they went to the one tree they ate of the tree and god got them out of the garden so they wouldn't eat from the other tree and so we know that they disrupted god's plan they brought it down they took out the harmony they took out the peace they took out the one world system that god had designed where they could be with god and all their generations and they had to live afterwards outside that garden. We also know this, then that God would one day restore this one world spot, this one world heavenly kingdom, where there will be perfect peace. There will be perfect harmony. God and man will rule together, live together. We have multiple passages that indicate this garden of Eden aspect will be restored towards the end of the ages. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord. His one name will be one. We know that the king of, shall see the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom which God sets up shall break in pieces and consume all the human earthly kingdoms and it will stand forever. We know that this one rule will happen when the Son of Man shall come in his glory with all of his angels. He shall sit upon his throne and before him all the nations shall be gathered. We know from scripture that in the dispensation of the fullness of times in the future he will come together and bring all into one spot, one harmony, both everything in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. We know that's that, that place of ideal living, idyllic living, prosperity, spiritual holiness, harmony between all of nature, harmony between all of people, harmony between God and man, will one day come at the end of all the ages. We know that that's going to happen. We understand that. It's going to happen when Jesus returns. In the meantime, 
What we have, and by the way, this text goes and says exactly when it happens, when Jesus comes back and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. In the meantime, God has established human governments, different nations. And he has established them from shortly after the garden. He made it occur that short, a few centuries later that there was going to be human governments and different governments. When they came off of the boat after Noah's flood, God instituted government sanctions, government restrictions. From now on, he said to Noah, what you're going to do as a society, if anybody sheds innocent blood, his blood shall you as a society shed. He gave authority to a social unit we call government so that they could stifle some of the, some of the anarchy that had gone on before the flood. And we also know that when God set up this one government, he clearly said, I don't want you all to be under one government. I want multiple governments. How do we know that? Because God said to Noah, he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Spread out. Spread out. Don't stay in one spot. Don't everybody stay together. Spread out. Move over the entire planet. Be fruitful, multiply, and go abundantly. He said it twice to them. Move out of here. Don't everybody stay in one spot. But we understand from the next chapter in Scripture that they stayed. They coerced everybody to stay together. We call it the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, everybody had to be in one spot. Everybody had to work in harmony. Everybody was under one world system. So God came down and God scattered them. And remember how God scattered them? What did he do to make sure there was nations? He changed the speech pattern. And it has remained that way from then on. That people did do what God said. They spread through the earth and they founded their many different individual nations. A lot of them based on language. And it's to stay that way until he returns. We see that in scripture. We see that in the temptation. That the controlling of these many nations, these different nations, was the question that Satan is posing to Jesus. Do you want control of these multiple nations? And Jesus is going to say, no, not at this point. This isn't the time for it. The nations continue on as they are until later on. Now there's a second illustrated point here. The second principled, illustrated principle is this. Satan was and is actively involved and influential in these human governments. That's no surprise to you, right? You read the newspaper. You see what goes on in D.C. and you say, surely that's got to be demonic. Okay, that's true. There is involvement, but there's also angels, good angels there. We know in Scripture that the Bible says Satan is a powerful force. We know that he's a force in this world because he is called the God of this world. He is identified by the apostle as the one who chiefly is in operation control right now here on planet Earth. We also know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world. They are active in this world promoting their their darkness, and they are rulers. They are, they are personages with great influence. They are spiritual wickedness that's even in the high places. We understand that. We can go all the way back to the book of Daniel, and we can see how God even identifies that in Daniel, there were certain angels, demonic ones, as well as good ones, assigned to the different national leaderships. He calls the Prince of Persia. That is not a movie. That is not some, you know, some mystical character. This is a spirit being that stops the angel coming to Daniel. 
with a message. He says the prince of Persia, the archicon of, of, of Persia, that one who is going to be a principality, a power, has stopped me for 21 days to bring you the message from God. There is, and he goes on, he says, there is also, there is a principle, a spiritual principle or power over Greece, and he identifies them. We also know from that text and other texts that there is Michael the archangel assigned to help Israel. So we have several nations mentioned, which brings us to the conclusion that surely in God's plan, he's indicated that these spiritual beings are assigned to different entities, different nationalities, different nation heads, and they are influencing those different world leaders, those different governments. Which we also know in Revelation 13, which is a text that if you were here when we did this study this past summer and before, last spring, we talked at length about what's going to happen in the future. How Satan will take the real active uh, uh, um, involvement in what's going to be called the last days, the last seven years, especially in the last three and a half years. He will empower a man called Antichrist. He will give him his strength. He will give him his wisdom. He will indwell him, empower him, so that this man can even do some powerful things. His henchman, who is called the false prophet, will be able to do miracles and be able to do amazing things. And he will then get power over all the kindreds, the tongues, and all the nations. We are told in Revelation 17 that all the nations that are form a confederacy of, the, of what we call Europe now, they are going to form a confederacy. They're going to give their power to this man. So we know that Satan's involved, wanting to get... The these nations under his control. Well, when he's tempting Jesus Christ, he, you know, he says to Jesus, he says, I'll give you these nations. If you just bow down to me, you can have control of these nations. Well, that explains how, G, how Satan can make this, this claim, how he can make this offer to Jesus, how he can say, I will give you the control. Because at this point, he does have that, some of that influence. He does have some of that control. He does have that involvement in human government. And he is basically saying, Jesus... I will let you have all of this. I will step back from some of my involvement as long as... Okay, what do you have to do, Jesus? You just have to acknowledge that me, me, I, I'm the one on top. In other words, let's bring it to this. Satan is not opposed to a one world government. He is offering it to Jesus. Even though God had said in the beginning, he started it and man corrupted it. And God said it'll come at the very end of time. Right now, in the meantime, there's the nation. Satan says, hey, well, listen, I would like a one world government too. That makes perfect sense. What God does, he always mimics. God does miracles, he mimics miracles before the Pharaoh of Egypt. God is going to have his Christ resurrect. Satan in Revelation 13 will have his Antichrist resurrect after, after being slain. And so he's going to mimic and he's going to say to Jesus, hey, I'm all for a one world government. You're for a one world government. Here, I'll let you be the one in charge at this point. But it's not supposed to happen until it's God's timing. And in the meantime, it's supposed to be various nations. And so Satan will even work hard to establish that one world government to try to imitate what God has designed. He's not opposed to a one world government. He's going to work towards that, to work to an anti-one world government. We see that. 
We know that. He is even saying, Jesus, you can have it. As long as I'm on top, it's okay. Now, we understand from Bible prophecy. Let's bring in a lot of Bible prophecy. We know that Jesus has revealed through Daniel that during this Old Testament era and up into the New Testament, there was major kingdoms. There was Babylon. There was to be Assyria. There was Greece. He predicted them. He gave images of the beast and of the statue. And he said, there's going to come in the latter days a one world government that's going to be very similar to what Rome had. It'll be in the same region of Rome. It'll be very strong. It's going to be a European Union of some sort of the Western world. Which, where does that leave America? We don't know. We, don't, we know that we are Roman-like in our government. We are Roman-like in our languages that came out of Europe. We have similarities. How much involvement we are in that Western confederacy of ten nations, I don't know. You don't know. But we know they're going to be there towards the last days. And then they're going to evolve into a one world system where Antichrist is in charge, Satan's empowering, Satan's trying to mimic what God said he was going to do, Satan's presented to the human race. A one world government. A one world government that he is describing in Revelation 17. You want to see a weird passage? Hold your finger in Mark 4. Revelation 17, there's a passage that for some of you it's just so confusing and it's not that hard. It's a really simple passage when you put all this together. In Revelation 17, we have him talking about something that looks odd, but it's real simple here. We go to Revelation 17, verse 10. He's talking about this future kingdom and all what's going to happen when Antichrist comes into authority. After he dies and comes back to power after three and a half years. Watch what it says in Revelation 17, 10. It says, there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and of the seven and goes into perdition. And you go, what? What is that? Here's what it is. Here's what it is. Watch how it just unfolds. He's already said in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, all about these governments. He's described them as ancient Babylon. He's already mentioned that. After him comes Medo-Persia. I said Assyria. I was Medo-Persia. Excuse me. There's Greece. After Greece comes ancient Rome. After ancient Rome, according to these prophecies, in the first part of the tribulation, there's a confederacy with, a, with Antichrist and his ten cohorts that he is working with, his, ten, his European Union or confederacy. Then Antichrist dies of a deadly wound. How long he's dead, we don't know. But then his, his counterpart, his... His harlot, the false religion, the church, will take over. But the church will only last for a small period. That's when the ten kings take the power back from the religious entity at that midpoint of the tribulation. They take power from the harlot. What they do is they turn it back over to the res resurrected or resuscitated Antichrist. He is part of the five, but then he is, is not. He will come back to life, and then he ends up being the eighth. And so we have putting all the prophecies together. All this is part of Satan's design to do a duplicate of a one world government that will counterfeit God's one world government that will only come at the very end of the age when God sets up his kingdom. But in the meantime, Satan's using all these different powers, all these different manipulations, trying to work people towards a one world government. He tried it with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. It didn't work. He'll try it again and he's headed towards that with Antichrist. And in that last seven years, he will get to be really close to success in the last three and a half years. Satan is saying, 
with this one world government. I'm going, to do, I'm going to take control. Now all of them have the same premise. They don't believe in God. They don't worship God. They don't, they don't honor God. They talk about how man is God or other spirits are God. They don't acknowledge that our real purpose on this earth is to glorify God. That's our purpose. We are, we're created to bring glory to God. You have created all things and for your pleasure they are, we're created. We aren't here to be happy. We aren't here so that we can get rich. We aren't here so that we can we can accumulate popularity and clothes and shoes and jewelry and pensions. We aren't here so we can have the world's greatest vacations. All those things are okay. They're good when done with the right spirit. But our ultimate goal here, we are to glorify God. That's why we exist. We don't come to church to get a thrill and a jolly. We come to church to worship God. Now, if there's a thrill and a jolly, that's fine. If at first and foremost, we're glorified. You don't play sports just to show off. You're supposed to be playing sports to glorify God. You aren't supposed to be rearing your family so that you have a good reputation. That's a good thing. But your ultimate goal is for the glory of God. You aren't supposed to, when you go to work, to do your best work just to get a raise. That's okay. There's nothing evil about that. As long as it's subordinate to this, you work for the glory of God. Everything you and I do is for the glory of God. We're supposed to be bringing him honor and glory because that's why we're created. Well, all this one world system doesn't say that. They say, no, no, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's about you being happy, you being glad, you getting rich, you not being comfortable. And so it permeates our entire thought pattern. This anti-God attitude, this attitude, let's put God out of the business, is not new. It was all the way back when we started this whole conversation about governments and God's ruling over the earth and when people rebelled at the very beginning of time an anti-God spirit was there all the way back at Babel in Babel when they made this this tower they did it for a reason there was a one world government system it was all about exalting and elevating mankind via religion it was all about not doing what God told them to do. It was all about this idea of building a city, a tower, whose top will reach into the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves, elevating mankind, elevating people over God. It was all about, as Josephus says, now here's a historian, we don't, this isn't Bible, but Josephus and other writers say that part of the reason they built this was so that the water might not hurt them in the future. If that's true, what weren't they believing they weren't believing God. How so? God said he would never again send a flood like that flood. So what you have in this anti-God spirit is this. You have basically a rejection of God's promises. Not accepting what God said. That is satanic, demonic, hellish type of doctrine. Anti-God doctrine. It's unbelief. It is rebellion against God's commands. Disobedience. Disobedience to what God says is righteous. It is the idea of you do your own thing. As long as you're happy, anything goes. It doesn't make any difference what the word of God says. It is a refusal of grace. We are good enough to make it to heaven on our own. We are, we, are gonna, we are gonna build whatever we build. Our own lives, our own churches. We can do it on our own and we'll exalt ourselves. And we're gonna make sure that everybody complies and follows into this. And there's gotta be toleration as long as there's toleration that you agree with me. Isn't that modern, modern thought? We tolerate as long as you agree with me. Isn't that the agenda that we're in? If we go back to what Pastor Art preached on just two weeks ago, when we talk about that whole discussion of the homosexuality, there's got to be toleration, but you cannot disagree with homosexuality. Right? Yes, no? 
Their argument is tolerate us, but they don't tolerate a different point of view. Everybody's got to conform. It's the same with the abortionists. It's not like you can say, okay, there's got to, you know, they, 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 you've got to tolerate my choice, but you don't get a choice. That baby gets no choice. It's, it's, it's the age old, age old that makes it sound good, that presents that, oh, we want choice, but there's no choice given. We want freedoms for all. As long as we get our freedom, you, you better just do what we say. That's all the way back into Babel. With Babel showing how leadership in leading of the people, the government in a one world mentality is forcing people to conform to that which is not pleasing to God. We will reject his promises. We'll reject his commands. Where does that come from? Well, God calls it in the New Testament a spirit of Antichrist. He says that even that spirit of Antichrist is in the world today. And he warns us about that. That he says, you've got to be careful of the false prophets, the false teachers, who are doing what? Who are promoting this one world idea that is really from the mind of Satan. It's not that one world is bad. It's that it's not to be here until Jesus brings it. Anything before that is not of Christ, not of God. It is out of the mind of Satan and his hordes. And he promotes it. It'll always result in discipline and displeasure from God. It is opposed to God. And so here we have Satan coming in. He's not opposed to a one world government. He has tried to duplicate that and promoted that over the years. He would say, Jesus, I'll even let you have a one world government as long as I'm on top. We'll have a one world system. But I've got to be on top. Not you, Jesus. You bow down. You worship me. If you worship me, we'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth right now. And so what we have is this. Jesus saying, absolutely not. That leads me to another principle. And we'll bring it all together as we go on. Like Christ, we need to reject any shortcut to this substitute for God's one kingdom. One kingdom, one world government, going to be under God, under Jesus Christ in the future. In the meantime, Satan's been trying to do that all through history, duplicate, bring up something else that exalts him by giving people the idea they're exalting themselves. And so Satan's presenting to Jesus, here, let's do the one world government. And by the way, it's a strong argument. Jesus, if you bow down to me and worship me, you can have control of all the nations. Just think about this. This is what God wants you to have anyway. God said you're going to be in control of all the nations, so why not do it now? Let's just avoid some of the problems. Let's make it easier for you, Jesus. Let's not have you suffer. Let's not have you die. Let's not have you go through your entire ministry. Let's not have you wait for 2,000 years. I will abdicate my authority. Give it all to you right now. Here's a shortcut. Here's a substitute. The problem is it's not in God's timing. It's not in God's plan. And if Jesus had agreed to this, he wouldn't have died on the cross. Where would that leave us? Where would that leave us? Hopeless. Helpless. Hell-bound. And so Satan has that plan. I don't want Jesus to die. Because if Jesus died, what does that do to Satan's authority? It said he defeated Satan. That it rendered him inoperative to a degree. That Jesus then provides freedom. Well, Satan doesn't want us to be free. He wants us to stay captive. And how does he convince us to allow him to put the shackles on? Oh, he's got all these interesting arguments. He's got all this, this glorious thoughts that sound so good. We can have a one world system and this one world system will solve all the world's problems. Folk, who here is going to say I'm for famine? 
Who here is going to say, I, I, I don't think we should ever tolerate another, another culture? Who here would say, we don't want education? Who's, who here says, I like war? None of us. He's using good stuff to promote bad stuff. And that's the way it always works. He always mixes good with bad. Did he not, in the beginning, twist the truth? And so he's trying to twist the truth because he can keep people thinking that they are going to solve their own problems. Who don't they need? They don't need God. You're your own God. Doesn't that sound like something all the way back from Eden? You shall be as... It's all blends together. It's all got the same thing. The premise behind this one world system that we bring about is wrong. This one world system that's promoted. We can't solve the world's problems. We can't. As a human race, we're not the solution. We are. We're the problem. Why is nature corrupted? Because of our sin nature. Nature groans, Romans chapter 8, because of man's sin. How is it that there is famine in the world? It's because of man's sin that brought down the things in the planet. Why are there wars? Because of man's sinful nature. Why is there greed, such greed at the corporate level? Because of man's sinful nature. By the way, I'm getting tired of hearing greed at the corporate level only. Isn't there greed at the bottom level too? Okay? Why some people are voting the way they do, it's all about their pension. Not about what's, what's principled, but about their pocketbook. So before we cast stones, even at those who are at corporate level, you and I better be careful that we're not just as greedy for our lesser dollars. The idea of here, this, that the man can solve his problem, doesn't he warn us in the prophets of old? They shall say, peace, peace, but there's only warfare. Hey, something else. Man's not going to bring about world peace. It'll never happen. It'll never happen until Jesus Christ comes back. In fact, when are the greatest wars that the world will ever know? Under the one world system that Satan will promote. That will be when you hear of wars and rumors of war. That's when you're going to have Armageddon. That's when you're going to have uh, well over half of the world's population alive at that time will die because of wars and famines and diseases and the animals turning upon man. See this idea? We can rescue creation. If we all get together, we'll eliminate all the problems in the physical world. It cannot happen. We are the problem. It is our sin that has tainted the world. Now, should that mean that we don't take good responsibility? I'm not saying that. Does that mean that we should go out and purposely dump our trash all over the place? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying by principle, we have to understand that the only one who can bring this world back to a harmony in nature is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can bring harmony to the human race. He's the only one that can solve the fiscal, financial, physical problems within this planet. It is not a Democrat. It is not a Republican. It's not a Green Party. It's not a Libertarian. And it's not a Constitutional Party. It's Jesus Christ. Now, in the meantime, should we have good stewardship with people trying to do what's right in keeping a lid on some of what's going on? Yes. 
Yes, but the reality is, you know, the idea is that we need God. We need Christ. This planet needs Jesus Christ. Individuals need him. The idea that diversity is not inherently bad. That, you know, that, that what we, we need to do is, you know, in, in diver, you know we got to get rid of all diversity. We got to get rid of it because diversity is what divides us. Diversity is, is what keeps us from having harmony. You know what? Diversity in and of itself is not always bad. Aren't you glad that in your marriage there is some diversity? Aren't you glad that the two of you don't think alike all the time? <laughs> You're not convinced. Aren't you glad you don't think the way I think? That you have to look the way I look. That you have to wear your hair the way I wear my hair. There's the amens. I knew I'd hit something eventually. Mandated sameness is what's the problem. That everybody's got a same thought. You have to think like me. No, no, no. We, have, we are independent individuals. We have the Spirit of God. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Take, let's take this all the way down to the, the, the Christian walking with Christ. Aren't you glad we have liberty as believers? That we don't all have to choose to wear the exact same outfits? Aren't you thrilled by that? Yes. Aren't you thrilled that some of you have a choice of what you do for personal entertainment and it doesn't have to be dictated to by the church? That's, that's a thrill that we have liberty. We have liberty of the foods we eat. I am so thankful I don't have to eat garbage coconut just because you say so. Right? We can choose our foods. We can choose our friends. We can, diversity is good. It's in God's plan. Who wants to take it away? Globalists slash the anti-God spirit. Everybody's got to conform under one roof. That's called dictatorship of the spirit. There is no freedom in that. That's why Satan wants that sameness with everybody. In fact, you better do what he says in his kingdom or you die. You better worship the way he wants everybody to worship or you die. Do you remember that? Do you remember He's going to make everybody worship the same religion and to prove that they're worshipers, what do they have on their hand or their forehead? This mark, this idea of let's get rid of diversity, let's get rid of nations, let's get rid of cultures. Okay? It sounds lofty, it sounds good, but it is not what God has in plan for this age. You see, this coming world system is going to be bad. That coming world system that, that, that we're headed towards, that coming world system that Satan will promote and introduce, and we're living in that revived Roman Empire age. We're living in the revived era, and one of the key elements to tell you and me that we're in that revived empire, that age approaching it, is the revival of 1948, the revival of the nation Israel. That embarks us and takes, and we'll deal with this tonight more in depth. But that whole idea that all of a sudden we're in that last time period, that reviving of that Roman, uh, ancient Roman Empire, and this system that will eventually come to fruition, where there's going to be nations giving up their independence and working under a one-nation confederacy. Oh, it'll sound good. It'll be great for the economy. I'm sure that's the way it's going to be sold. It'll be great for getting rid of diversity. It'll be great for toleration. And the sales pitch will be phenomenal. But it's not going to work. People are going to lose their freedoms. Borders will be torn down. Famines and natural disasters will not go away. The Bible says they're going to abound. It's going to get worse. 
We know global economics aren't going to get better. It's going to get so bad in that time period with that one world system. Everybody under one economy where everybody can be wealthy the same. And there won't be any rich and won't be any poor. Everybody will be, will be equal. It sounds so wonderful. But in that time period, to buy one Big Mac sandwich will cost you all your wages of one day. The Bible predicts just one sandwich. In fact, it won't even be as good as a Big Mac. It'll be the cheaper burger. It says that the cheap, the cheap man's sandwich will cost one day's wages. How are you going to feed your whole family on one of them? How are you going to do that then? Global economics will be terrible. The power struggle at the top will be savagery. We read about that in what I just read you in Revelation 17. How one's on top and they take the other one out and they take the other one out. It's going to be a terrible time. And worst of all, believers who believe in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Why? That's Satan in charge. He's going to want to get rid of the believers. He's also not going to want to get rid of the believers. He's going to want to get rid of what group of people? The Jews. If he can get rid of the Jews because they are God's chosen people that God promised would never be wiped out. And if you go through what I gave you up to this point and look at all of these major empires, another characteristic of a lot of them was this. They tried to wipe out the Jews. It's the one world system. It's a system that is not what we should be involved in. It is a system we as a nation should not be, should not be courting. And it has some political ramifications. I understand all that. What we should be doing as believers is encouraging, listen, let's patiently wait and look for Jesus Christ to come back. Let's put our hope with the one who is the healer of the nations and of the worlds and of the souls. Let's look to Jesus Christ. Let's not look to the UN. Let's look to Jesus Christ. Let's not look to a universal global system to solve the world's problems. In fact, let's take a step further. What we need to do and this is where it gets real practical, is we need to be like Jesus Christ in light of all this. Whether it be the politics or the temptations of Satan in our own personal life, what we need to do is we need to submit to God's word. His timetable, his word, his plan. That's what Jesus does. That's how this, this concludes. Jesus is going to still live in this world. He is going to operate within the, within the national uh, boundaries of the Jews. He's going to do what he needs to do. But he's not going to shortcut and say, okay, I want a one world system and I'll, I'll bring it in. Satan, you're at the top. I'm not going to do that. That's not, this isn't what God said. So I'm not going to do what my, father, what my father hasn't planned. Jesus trusts in the power of God's word, first of all, to help him in the moment of temptation. He so believes in the Bible that when he's tempted, he quotes it. He quotes it. He quotes it. He believes that it is powerful enough to scare Satan away. He believes it. He knows it. And he uses it. Do you? When you're tempted, do you use the word of God? Have you committed it to memory enough that you say, I trust the word. I trust it to help me to resist sin. He makes his decisions even though he's under pressure. And it sounds so good. And it's easy. And it's going to bring things happen quickly. It sounds, he says, nope, nope. The bottom line here isn't about economics. The bottom line here isn't about politics. The bottom line is we're supposed to worship the Lord God. That's why we're created. We're to worship him and him only. I'm going to do what he says. Even in my life in making decisions, I'm going to follow the word. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus said this. 
or the last time. Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. That's all. That's, that's what I thrive on. That's what I survive on. I will do whatever he says. When he is approaching his last week, he's in conversation with some Gentiles, and they are asking him questions. He responds by this. He says, my soul is burdened. I know I'm going to die. Within a few days, I'm going to die. The crowds have just cheered me, but I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me. My soul is troubled, and what am I supposed to say? Father, save me from this hour? <laughs> he says, No. For this cause came I unto this hour. I am here for one purpose, to die so as to glorify the Father. That's why I'm here. Even if it means suffering, even if it means that I'm going to give my life, even if I'm going to suffer hell for you, for me. He says, I'm going to do that. That's the way I glorify my Father. I'm going to do what my Father says, even though it's difficult. Do you? Do you? Do you follow the word? (laughs) Yesterday, after I finished some calls, I went home. And I get home, and um, I went to the shed, and there's some things. We moved a few months ago, and um, the the previous owners left some equipment there that went with the house. Some things I have no idea what they are. And so it's lawn equipment. All I know about lawns is a mower. That's the only equipment I know. I don't know anything about seeding them, taking care of that stuff. It's just, it grows, I cut it. It grows, I cut it. That's it. Okay. So these people who lived before, they were wonderful, wonderful lawn care people. They have flowers everywhere. They are all cut. Mm, no more does it. That's all I know. I cut them or they die anyway. So there's... So I go in the shed, and there's some type of yard equipment there that has wheels, and it's all apart, and it's some type of, it's some type of uh, sweeper for the, you sweep your lawn, sweep your grass. And it's like, really? Yeah. Sweep it? So I'm looking at this device, and it's got to go together somehow. I'm looking this over, and I'm scratching my head and going, surely I can figure this out. So I brought everything out, laid it in the yard, there's a canvas bag, there's pipes, there's wheels, there's... <sighs> I really bit the bullet. I went in the house and I got the directions. <laughs> I'm desperate. I brought the directions out. I've got all the parts there. And I'm looking at the pictures on the directions. I'm not reading them. Directions aren't for reading, they give you a picture. Amen, men? It's the picture. You just look at the picture. But they don't have the right angle. The picture doesn't help me out. Now I am really desperate. I have to read the directions. <laughs> Guys, is that the end? Is that... Now, I've made one decision. I'm selling this thing. <laughs> but I read the directions, and I got it together. It doesn't work, but I got it together. Okay? It works. How many times are we with, in our life like that? We've got difficulties, we've got problems, we've got situations, and it's like, I can figure this out. I don't need this book yet. I got this under control. I know how to raise these kids. <laughs> really? Yeah, I saw my parents do it. Look how I turned out. (laughs) Scary, huh? Then we look at pictures. The pictures, we try to take the shortcut. The pictures looking at each other. I'll do what they do. I'll do what so-and-so does. Because I see them at church and they never have any problems. 
They, they, they're such a good picture, they never struggle. And the rest of us go, yeah, right. You need to read the directions. You need to take the time, and it's against your nature, it's against your time, but you need to say, hey, my purpose here is to follow the word. Well, if Jesus is going to follow the word, he had to know it. He had to know to say to Satan, "Uh uh-uh, this doesn't work, Satan. This shortcut idea ain't going to work. And here's a passage that is the idea here. The passage that you're dealing with, Satan, it's not honoring Father. We're not worshiping the way we should. That's what this is all about. It's not about government. It's worshiping God. It's exalting God. It's, yes, I need to know how to raise my kids. Why? I need to read so I know how to speak to them, what my priorities are. Why? To glorify and worship God. I need to know what the Word says about my parents, my elderly parents, and how I should deal with them, what I should say, what I shouldn't, so I can glorify God. I need to know for financial decisions so I can glorify God. I need to know what kind of friends I should have so I can glorify God. I need to examine the word of God. To how to deal with somebody who's got me really miffed. Somebody at, at school or somebody at work. Some relative. I need to know so I can glorify God. I need to know how to, how to work at work so I can glorify God. I need to know how to deal with temptations so I can glorify God. That's the essence of this. It's all about glorifying God. You know, the bottom line you need to study from the word of God is this. How are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to get to heaven? You're going to get to heaven by your baptism... You won't find that in the Bible. I'm going to get to heaven by going to church. You won't find that in the Bible. I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a Baptist. You definitely won't find that in the Bible. I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a preacher. Ha! That's not in the Bible. I'm going to get to heaven by giving money to church. That's not in the Bible. You're only going to find in the Bible this idea of getting to heaven. You need Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but... That's what he said. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's it. You have to come the way the Bible says. You see, folk, here's the bottom line of this whole thing. Bring this whole discussion together. Bring it all down to the nitty-gritty. And it's, there's, there's two ways that this works. You and your life... In your everyday life, you and your walk with God, you and your politics, there's one of two roads you're taking. You're taking Babel way or Bible way. That's it. The Babel way has been repeated through history and it's going to try to be repeated in the end times. Jesus says there's a better way. But here's the Babel way. The Babel way raises man as supreme. It says man is the answer. We're our own authority. We're at the peak of evolution. That we can solve all the world's problems. No. That's the Bible way. That's not the Bible way. You reject God's promises. There's an unbelief in his word. There's an unbelief that God even created. There's an unbelief that God is going to come again. There's an unbelief that that God is the source of all peace, harmony, and joy. There's an unbelief that there was a flood. There's an unbelief that the word even, the miracles that Jesus did is even truth. Well, there's rebellion from what God commands. There's this disobedient spirit that says we can do our own thing. It doesn't make any difference what God says about sex. It doesn't make any difference what God says about the innocents. It doesn't make any difference what God says about taking care of the elderly. It doesn't make any difference what God says about debt, which we dealt with last Sunday night. We don't, we, we're okay. That's the Babel way. 
The Babel way is do your own thing. The Babel way is to refuse the grace of God. To refuse the goodness of God and just say, I don't need you. Oh, it's not that blatant. It's more like I'm good enough on my own. But in essence, you're saying, I don't need you. I'm good enough. I don't need you. Here's the Bible way. The Bible way says, whether therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's our life. That's our motivation. That's what we do day in and day out. We do all for the glory of God. The Bible way says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life which I now live, it's because Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live, listen to, watch this. Watch, look up here. I live by the faith of, not in. I live by the faith of the Son of God. In other words, the teachings of the Son of God. I live by His teachings who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the Bible way. The Bible way is I can do all things through Christ. Not through me. Not through us together. Through Christ. I can do all things. See what? It all says this. As I walk away from this Bible study, as I walk away, here's what's going to go through my mind this week. Here's the thought that I think is paramount. The thought is this. We, need, we all need to acknowledge how much we need God in our world and in our own personal lives. That's the message. The world needs God. The world, you and me, the world people, we need Christ in our lives.